John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, Cinephiles fans. This is the outlaw, John Roca. This week on The Cinephiles, Steve Morris and I go back to 1998 to talk about one of our favorite films, Rounders. This film, directed by John Dahl, stars Matt Damon, Edward Norton, Gretchen Maul, John Turturro, the great Martin Landau, and in one of the most iconic performances, for better or worse, depending on your point of view, John Malkovich as Teddy KGB. This fantastic, small, independent film tells the story of Mike McDermott, who is a young, reformed gambler who must return to playing big-stakes poker to help a friend pay off loan sharks. That's a friend named Worm. That's who Edward Norton plays. While balancing his relationship with his girlfriend, that's Gretchen Maul, and his commitments to law school, where Martin Landau's character is teaching Mike McDermott. This film put the hook in me so good from the trailer that I walked 28 blocks in London to go see this film at some random theater way on the outskirts of the city where I was staying at. And I knew I had to see it because at the time, I also was confronted with this idea of should I play it safe or should I ante up and really become an actor? And I remember this film has always been an iconic film for me to go back and revisit because it opened up so many things in my mind to the possibilities of a different future. Uh, Steve and I are going to explore this thing over two parts. So part one will be happening this weekend. So join us for our conversation of Rounders. Also remember, if you want to download any of the episodes that we have, or if you want to buy any of the films we talk about off Amazon, go to our website, 
www.cine-files.net. That's www.cine-files.net. You get some cool artwork and you get the links to buy any of the films we talk about here on The Cinephiles. Also remember our short this week will be talking about Shark Week. You know Steve Morris is a big fan of sharks and sometimes doesn't like the way they're portrayed in certain films. And so as a guy who loves these sharks but sees the sharks being taken advantage of for Shark Week to get people to watch these programs, I'm going to explore what his feelings are about this situation here on a Cinephiles short. All right, take care of yourselves, be well, and come and join us on Friday for part one of Rounders here on The Cinephiles. Listen, here's the thing. If you can't spot the sucker in your first half hour at the table, then you are the sucker. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its, we explore its themes, it's, <laughs> we explore its themes, the film, the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I wonder how many busted intros yeah. we have that actually went into the show. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, hey, everyone. This is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, host, and voiceover artist on the uh, Outlaw Nation and here on uh, The Cinephiles. And uh, we are diving into one of my favorite films ever, 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 ever made. One I have seen many, many times, Steve. It's so funny because this is what there are a few films which literally since the beginning of the cinephiles, mm-hmm. you and I both went, oh, I love that. I'm sure we'll do that sometime. And here it is. We're almost six years. We're six plus years into the show. <laughs> and we are finally getting to 1998 Rounders with Matt Damon and uh, Ed- Edward Norton. Man, I'm having a rough time today. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'll take it. it. With Matt Damon, Edward Norton, and Gretchen Maul, uh, directed by uh, John Dahl uh, from a screenplay from David Levian and Brian Koppelman. Uh, Koppelman involved, I think, in Billions, working mm-hmm. on Billions. So famously known for John Malkovich's Teddy KGB character and that accent that has been the accent of legend. Everyone who's ever seen this movie has a Teddy KGB imitation. Uh, but aside from that, this film is one of the most interesting films right on the tail end of the independent film movement here in the late 90s, Steve, right when the, we, the studios were kind of turning a corner from the independent stuff or were sliding back over to the more popular stuff. This is one of those last ones. And I think and I don't think there's a person who plays cards who doesn't love this movie. This is the godfather of card movies like for people. Oh, yeah. They reference these mo- this movie. Anybody who plays cards reference this references this movie. Do you remember how you first came to it? Yeah, I walked 28 blocks in London to go see Rounders by myself. When it came out, we were there studying in London, and I remember it had come out on in uh, in in there when we were over there. And I, I there was no theater close to us that was showing it, and I walked 28 blocks to go see this thing. Uh, and I walked all those blocks back to where we were staying there in London uh, in an exchange program, and all I did was think about this movie. Just think about it, think about it, think about it, because I was in, right in the middle of becoming an actor or studying to become an actor there at Florida State, and I just thought about all the incredible performances, yes, including Malkovich, in this movie, and the mood and the vibe and the score and the feeling of this movie and the message of this movie, which is 
revisiting it for this um, episode, the messages came clear yet again this late in my life. You know, I saw it in the theater in L.A. And it's, it's so funny. It, this is one of those movies where looking at it now, it just I always assumed it was a hit because oh. I loved it so much yeah. when I saw it in the theater. I just thought it was a great movie. And it's only like, no, no, it didn't do well at all. Another Ed Norton movie we talked about, which comes out, I think, the next year, which is Fight Club, is the same thing, which is yeah. I'm blown away by it in the theater and can't believe that it actually was a, a kind of a flop at the time. But then Rounders is one that's just gained momentum over the time. It's like a cult film. Is that a movie that cinephiles love? And I, I just think it's such a tight film. I have the tiniest bit of pre-production. Okay, let's do it. Uh, it starts with one of these two writers, as you said, David Levian and Brian Koppelman. One of them, and I don't know which one, ended up in a underground poker game <laughs> where a guy named Eddie KGB cleaned him out. And he <laughs> went to his partner. And they'd always talked about writing a movie together. And he said, yeah. we got to write a movie about poker. And it seems like this is their first screenplay. Wow. Yeah, that's my impression I got. Um, and so they sit down to write it and they they spent a lot of time going to so there this is a real thing. There really are these games all over New York City. And they started going to them, started talking to a lot of the poker players, started learning the lingo. It goes to uh, John Dahl, who's the director, loves it when he first re read it and said it reminded him of The Hustler. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which never occurred to me, right. but it is so much in that vibe, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, it's so funny. John Dahl is one of these directors who he's had a very long career. Yes. But he's never had the movie career that I think this movie shows that he deserved. You yeah. Because uh, yeah, he, he did Red Rock West, which was a great like kind of announcement of mm -hmm. him as a, as a film director. Uh, and then The Last Seduction, which was so well known for Linda Fiorentino's performance in that film and showing a woman who was – you know, sleeping with dudes and tossing them away and using them up and getting what she wanted, essentially turning her, her into the male version or the female version of male uh, males we've seen in leads of certain films that have been unsavory in the past. And here she is embracing it. So there was this kind of feeling about The Last Seduction that was groundbreaking about it. So he and then he follows that up with Unforgettable, which was a Ray Liotta film, which was kind of forgettable. And then Round. <laughs> You know, and Rounders is the one that really just kind of put the hook in me for him as a director. And I don't know, you know, he, he works in TV. He's recently done some episodes of Billions and Yellowstone and other things. And so he's still, a, a, a you know, a, an in-demand director on the TV side, but he's rarely come back to do feature films since like the middle of the 2000s. Yeah, it's and, and if you look at his IMDb, it is a classy list of TV credits. Yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, he done, he's just, so his career is going fine, yes. but it is interesting that, you know, these people that make what I think are really good movies that end up not being, having the careers that maybe I thought they deserved. Yeah. Um, when he gets a screenplay, he goes to the writers and says, listen, this is perfect. I think we're pretty much going to shoot it as is. And then of course, that's when the notes start <laughs> and those lots and lots <laughs> of notes on how to, because they, you know, they were uh, beginners and he, he even told them, you guys can come to the set right up until you become assholes wow. and then I'll kick you off the set. So the writers were pretty much on the set the whole time because they never really became assholes. Right. The other thing about this, man, you think about, I hadn't thought a lot about the arrival of Matt Damon. Right. Yes. Because this is when he gets cast in this, it's before Goodwill hunting had come out, you know? So he's had those, those other roles and kind of shined a little bit in supporting parts. And then Goodwill hunting is about to come out. 
where he's going to win the Oscar for best screenplay. And this is going to come out. I mean, you know, he explodes on the scene pretty powerfully when he does. Yeah. Yeah. One after another with some incredible films for sure. And this one's showing yet another, um, how can I say this? Another performance that shows you what Matt Damon is capable of, even in a quiet film like this, you know, it's really showing how he can carry this film with the moments of not nonverbal acting. Yeah. I think he does really well throughout the movie because Edward Norton arguably has the flashier role. Sure. So Matt has to kind of underplay it. So knowing that he can underplay it and, you know, still maintain his status, I think has served him well, even up to the last duel where it was Adam driver who had the flashier role. Right. Here's Matt Damon playing that character a little more quietly. Um, that is the full extent of my pre-production. <laughs> Would you like to get into this movie? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. It starts off. We have very cool music. that's very dramatic. And we see a silhouetted Matt Damon getting dressed in the middle of the night. And there's a unconscious girl in the bed. And we see him grab a book and find some more money. And then he's opens up a drawer and there's some more money in the box. There's some more money. And there's the back of a picture frame. And that's got more money in it. And we start to get a sense of where this thing is going and we hear because this is a voiceover movie listen here's the thing if you can't spot the sucker in your first half hour at the table then you are the sucker yeah man this is a logic that has stayed with me through life <laughs> yep yep it's, it's well and this is it's funny i think there's maybe slightly too much voiceover in this movie there's some moments oh. where i go but but i also think having written a couple of voiceover movies yeah. that this is a really good one. Yeah, it is. To me, it's on par with what Morgan does in Shawshank Redemption. I really do think it's one of those that belongs in the conversation. It's not as good, obviously, but it's certainly it's in the conversation. And I love this opening because there's a lot of symbolism in this opening. Him turning the lights off on Gretchen Mall foreshadows yep. the end of their relationship. Him opening up that cigar case, it says Lone Wolf right on it. That gives you tells you exactly what he's going to end up being. And all the the money he is taking out of these place these places, which would usually be places to seek culture or learning, like an art piece or a book or even a, ta- a videotape, that just tells you where he va- what he values and what he doesn't value, and it also foreshadows how he's going to turn his back on education in exchange for money, going after the money of uh, and the fame of being a poker player. You know how we've talked about this idea of what I call a thesis film, where like you come up with a a question sort of at the very beginning, and then the whole movie's going to explore that. So when Harry Met Sally is men and women can't be friends because the sex part gets in the way. Um, Well, and there's like bullets over Broadway where there's this discussion of what's more valuable, the art or the person. There's um, there's a whole bunch of movies. We did Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is all exploring sin and God. And this one right here at the beginning in the voiceover, we hear basically these two big ideas he says guys around here i'll tell you you play for a living it's like any other job you don't gamble you grind it out so that's one pole of the philosophy yeah don't gamble grind it out yeah get your money in when you have the best of it protect it when you don't don't give anything away that's how i've paid my way through half a law school a true grinder and let me tell you something when you're a 20 something year old person and you're watching this movie for the first time and you're dreaming of becoming an actor as you said when you're dreaming of becoming an actor and you hear this line you can play it safe all you want and in the end you'll just be a guy who played it safe and you can grind it out and probably eke out a living 
but you don't want to wake up one day and be that guy, you know? And so it's just a, it hit me at the right time, right in that sweet spot of like wanting to be something more than just what I was. And so I just remember this movie having such a profound effect on me, man. Well, and what's so interesting about it is we're going to have two characters in this film that Mm. represent these poles. We're going to have someone who represents grinding it out. Yes. And we're going to have someone who continually takes huge risks. Yes. You know, and finding out where Matt Damon's character, Mike, fits within that those two poles is what the whole movie is going to be exploring. Yeah, very much so. You know, and we as he's, we're hearing this voiceover, we're going down to some big metal door that has the little slide open because it's a secret, you know, gambling club to go into. And there, when that slide opens, we see John Malkovich, who plays Teddy KGB. Who is eating an Oreo? Again, foreshadowing what the yep. tell is going to be down the road. Uh, it's the only time Teddy opens the door. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice kind of intro to Teddy. And uh, I love that it's the, the camera stays on that, right? It doesn't go inside before he goes inside. It stays with the mystery of this slot for just a few seconds. And then, boom, uh, we go inside. This is Teddy KGB's place. 500. You won't find it in the yellow pages. No, not tonight. No? What about? Give me three stacks of high society. And already, Steve, just like the Coen brothers, we're going to get slang dialogue throughout this whole thing. And Koppelman and Levine do an excellent job of just putting you in this world and you have to catch up. They're not going to explain to you, even with the voiceover, they're not going to explain to you every slang term they're going to use. You're going to have to figure it out depending on what happens around the scene and why that term is being used, which I love. Well, and I have no idea which which of these terms are actually real ones and which ones they made up. (laughs) I don't go in this world, but I'm completely convinced by it. Like it seems I'm convinced that this is how these guys talk. Yeah. And three stacks of high society, John, is $30,000. Yeah. Ten grand, I imagine. I can't imagine the idea of putting 30 grand on the line. Neither can I. But I will tell you something, which is my father-in-law, who was a somewhat of a compulsive gamble gambler. Yeah. You want to know what his license plate was? Oh, God. No. What was it? 30K in one day. Because <laughs> he once lost $30,000. I think it was at the track. It might have been at a casino. I don't know for sure. Oh. And that was his license plate the entire time I knew him. 30K in one day. Wow. Was that a reminder to never do it again? Or was that a... I think <laughs> it was half that and okay. half a point of pride. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. So it was a, he was a complicated man, my father-in-law. Uh, fair enough. And there's a huge reaction to him getting three stacks of high society. He doesn't look like much. But KGB is connected all the way to the top of the Russian mob. He's the one guy in the game you don't want to fuck with. But if you're looking for high stakes, this is the only place in town. And then as he's got his huge stacks of chips and he's walking over to the table, we see John Turturro. The physicality here is really interesting, right? Because immediately before we hear the voiceover, Matt Damon is telling us, and this may be something that you, this may be, you know, I've never thought that there was too much voiceover, Steve, but I have that thought now in my head as I want, as we go through these scenes and maybe in this moment, because Matt is telling us everything we need to know. Yeah. Him covering the chips with his hat to hide them from Kanish as he sees Kanish, his face kind of dropping a little bit as he sees Kanish. I know that face. 
I've been that face where you're like, oh, damn it, he's here. I want to do this without anybody. He's the one guy that can talk me out of it or there's one person that can talk me out of it. I don't want to see that person. And, of course, that's what he says. So the physicality that Damon does here is so great. And Kanish coming in, great introduction of John Tortura. There's no, like, big, you know, uh, backstory with him. You just immediately know who he is or who this person is in this guy's life. And the way they interact with each other in that moment is really great. He's like, oh, yeah, I've been holding these for you. He's trying to bullshit him, you know, in a, in a way. Uh, and the guy's telling him, Do, I know you're not going to play this. Don't put this down here. These guys are going to eat you up. Don't, you're not ready. And you can tell from Matt Damon's face here, which is also some great acting, he's not ready. He thinks he's ready, but he's not ready. And how many of us have taken on a situation where we think we're ready or we're not ready? And then later when we revisit it, we are ready and we knock it out of the park. So it's just so interesting to watch this this whole scene play out because he wouldn't be hiding the chips if he was ready. He'd be uh, you know fully 100% dialed in and knows what he's doing. And you know we said that there's going to be a character who represents grinding it out. Yes. That is Joey Kanish. And and what's so funny, like we just you know the, I think the last Tatura movie we did was uh, Do the Right Thing. Yeah. And he's played so many dynamic, interesting oh, yeah. character parts. And I think Joey Kanish is so restrained mm-hmm. and well-defined as who this guy is, you know? Yeah, he's one of my favorite Tortura performances because you're right, Steve. He's so restrained. Yep. Very chill. Yeah. He's as close to a friend as there is in this place. Come here. But tonight, I don't want to see him. Hey, you don't want to butt onions with these guys. They'll chew you up. They'll take your whole bank off. This is, all, this is all the language, but onions, you know? That's what you say. Well, there's plenty of easy games. We get out of here, get some coffee, ride over to that soft seat in Queens. And Mike is not having any of that. He wants to, he says, I can beat the game. I'll tell you the weird thing I think about this movie is that the way it talks about it, about p- poker, yeah. is there's no luck. It's all yeah. skill. Skill. And that the best player will win. Right. Now, I'm not a poker player. Let me just preface this. I am not so, you know, yeah. an expert in this in any way. But every single one of the best players in the world loses some of the time. Sure. You know, there is a luck element here. Yeah. And you might not have the cards that night or you might play be perfectly even. And then there's going to be some other element of probability that's going to make the difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- and I think when he's talking about what he's talking about, he's talking about at that level. You know, it's not like you and I and, and like Vogel and Shannon getting together and playing cards. This is like oh, that yeah. level is what he's talking about. It's very much about skill and uh, ability to outplay the person. Absolutely. Uh, in those moments. So I love that he's, you know, kind of dropping these little wisdom moments as well. And then he sits down at the table and we get a explanation of Texas No Limit Hold'em. Yeah. And the thing is, is this is the beginning of this whole poker movement that happened. Yeah, right. It, it, it was right. Just like Titanic came out at the right time at the peak of the interest that the public had as a as a mainstream uh, pop culture thing in the in Titanic. It took advantage of that. It's great timing. This also right at that time when poker was starting to explode. And this film was a big reason why it did so, at least with those people at that time. And then Casino, three years later, I think, also takes advantage of that because we're seeing a lot of that kind of card playing in that film as well. It's so funny because I never played uh, Texas Hold'em. Like, those aren't the poker games that I was taught growing up. Um, But you get a good explanation of how the game works in case you haven't gotten it. By the way, the studio, one of the things they said was they said, we're really worried that these poker games are going to be really boring. 
So can you move the camera around a lot, like have lots of cool, crazy camera moves to make it more exciting? And John Dahl said, no, the opposite. <laughs> that would highlight, that would make them more boring. Yeah. Is that what we need to do is not move the camera very much. So you really, so the storytelling and the character moments are all really clear. Yeah. Just smart directing. Yep. So we start to see this hand being played. I just got top two pair on the flop and I want to keep him in the hand. Against your average guy, I'd set a bear trap, hardly bet at all. Let him walk into it. But KGB's too smart for that. So what I've got to do is overbet the pot, make it look like I'm trying to buy it. And as their bets are going back and forth, Teddy KGB grabs a cookie mm -hmm. and eats it. My guess is Teddy's on a flush draw. And he's hoping that he makes his flush because he makes if he makes his flush, then he's going to, you know, bet big. And that's what he thinks has happened. Yeah, I'm going to go all in because I don't think you got the space. One of the commentary tracks is the director, the writers, and Ed Norton, no Matt yeah. Damon. Oh. And the other commentary track is a bunch of professional poker players, including Johnny Chan. Wow. And all of them said they wouldn't have gone in all in. <laughs> of course. Of course, because they're not playing the actual hand. Yes. Yeah. Please. You're right. I don't have spades. Let's take just a moment to discuss this accent. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. So here's my here's here's where I will put it. Okay. There is another beloved movie yeah. where someone gives a beloved performance with a widely ridiculed accent. Yes. And that is Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. Yes. That's where I think this is. Is I totally oh. love Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. Right. I think the accent is terrible. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck accent John Malkovich is doing here. It doesn't sound like Russian to me. Apparently there was a Russian woman who he was friends with, who he had her say all his lines, and that's where he got this accent. And he has defended that this is some kind of Russian accent, and maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. But I don't care. I love John Malkovich in this movie. I love it. It doesn't throw me out at all. No. And, and the thing is, Malkovich knows it's a bad He said, like, Damon tells this story all the time about how when this rounder stuff, because everyone always asks him about the Teddy KGB accent, and he says, um, you know, uh, we were doing a scene and Teddy, the splash the pot scene is that Teddy goes, I will splash the pot whenever the fuck I want to. And um, the director yells cut, John Dahl yells cut, and Damon, uh, uh, Malkovich looks at Damon and he goes, I'm a terrible actor. And then just walked away. <laughs> it's gee, So I think Malkovich, you, you talk about Damon was having a moment, so was Malkovich. Malkovich was... Sure. Becoming it was Malkovich was a star here in the 1990s. People watched his movies. They dug his appearances. They enjoyed him. He was establishing himself as this kind of avant-garde, uh, interesting character, kind of like the Willem Dafoe. You know, him and Willem Dafoe kind of belong in this little small box uh, of uh, character actors that are really unusual and unique and bring something different every time that you don't expect. And so he's in this space, and um, he comes up with this accident. From what Koppelman has said in, in numerous podcasts I've listened to him, is that they, the director, John Dahl, didn't have the cachet in his mind to stop Malkovich from doing this accent. And they thought Malkovich had went and studied it, you know, it's some, just some obscure region in Russia. And so was trying to kind of bring this accent back. And by the time that they realized that that hadn't been the case, they were too deep into filming the film to go back and reshoot any of this stuff. Because I'm, I'm sure the budget for this was not that high. So, no. um, so they just had to kind of roll with it. And just like Dick Van Dyke, I will say this. You just said you really enjoy his, him in the film. 
Malkovich is enjoyable in spite of the accent, and that speaks even more volumes about how talented he is as a performer, that even with that accent, he still stands out as an iconic role, a kind of character, and also delivers a, an incredible performance. You know, I, I love him, and here's how I'll put it. Teddy KGB, that guy, he really has that accent. Yeah. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. That's the right accent for that guy, <laughs> you know? Um, oh, and okay. at the moment that he says, you're right, I don't have spades, yeah. Mike knows. He has a full house with aces, wins the bet, and I think Matt Damon's reaction, he plays it so well yeah. in that moment. It's when everything falls out of your body, maybe through your butthole or the bottom of your feet, and you're just sitting there and you just cannot grasp what just happened. And I love the Kanish who had warned him. Yep. Kanish is the first person who walks over and says to him, stand up, get up, you know, because he's essentially saying, you got, you got to get up. You got to get back in that plane, Maverick. You got to get yeah. back up there. That's basically what he's saying to him. Don't let them see you sweat. Don't let them see you down on the ground. Get up, roll, you know, you'll deal with it later. Go behind closed doors and cry or whatever. But like for now, for appearances sake, get up and walk out of here with your head held high. Well, and I think we might not want to live like Knish. No. But he has got he has got it figured out. He yeah. has he has thought deeply about how you should do this, mm -hmm. and he is living the life by the standards that he set. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Down to the felt, Kanish. I lost everything. Which, again, it's really good writing for yeah. this world. lost my case money. I lost my tuition. What happens to everyone? Time to time, everyone goes bust. Did Kanish ever take a run? Yeah, oh, yeah. I think Kanish understands because of what he may have gone through in his early years, you know, because he radiates New York. Yeah. I don't think Matt Damon necessarily radiates New York in this film, but Kanish does. So does Edward Norton, actually. Um, and uh, you see this. So I think that's what he's speaking from, that experience. And he took that experience and he completely changed his life. And he realized, hey, I took my shot. I blew it. I didn't want to. I'm not going to do it again. Uh, and then he gives his reasons later. But I think he also kind of realized that and realized, OK, I can make a living at this as long as I never indulge that instinct, that other instinct of mine to go in bed at all. So he's speaking from experience and he's probably had quite a few people drive that truck of his yeah. <laughs> to, to find their way back to above uh, surface level. Yeah, I think I think he did ex like exactly this. And later on, we're going to hear that he's got alimony, he's child support. Yeah, I think he wrecked his marriage. You know what I mean? Yeah, probably. But, yes, yes. Good point. And I, and I think he hit bottom. Yeah. And I think then he said, OK, I can only do it in this way to survive. Um, and Kanish even offers to stake him. Yeah. Anyway, let me stake you. Standard deal, you know, 50% of your winnings. You lose is on me. I just throw it away. You still got the truck? This is the thing about the character of Mike McDermott, because he's got penance. He's a, to me, he radiates um, like he's a Catholic, an Irish Catholic, you know, because he, he, he's doing penance now, driving that truck. He could have easily taken Kanish's money, been staked, percentage goes to Kanish, the rest goes to him. And worked the games and worked him way worked his way back up. But he's got to punish himself for what he did. He's got to punish himself for losing. He's got to punish himself for falling prey to Teddy's trick. Uh, and so him driving the truck is his way of punishing himself. And what we found out later is his way of maintaining or trying to save his relationship with Gretchen Moll in the film. 
And then we see it's nine months later and he's, you know, doing deliveries with this truck and still obsessing over dropping that hand to Teddy KGB. <laughs> <laughs> I like it the little stops. No. Well, I mean, I know, I know that you have had your vision of driving that truck and still obsessing over something. Listen, I just barely got over losing that match in December. I just barely got over it a month or two ago. So, yes, that happens. You drive around thinking all the different things you could have done. That is life. Fuck, it sucks. But for those of us who want to achieve something great, the reason we kick our own asses for so long is because that's the process that we know works for us. For better or worse, we know it's the process that works for us. And after kind of a funny joke with the clerk at the store about Steinbrenner. I think that's great, isn't it? Uh, because yeah. like, you can, And by the way, that character actor is doing, he does all kinds of stuff. He's a fucking great New York actor. But that scene is really brilliant, too, because he's having the moment with him. He's like, what about Steinbrenner? So you're seeing the New York moment where the guy behind the counter uh, kind of is is derisive towards the dude who's a, studying to be a lawyer, but he's delivering the grocery or the, delivering the the supplies there or whatever. And he, he said, what, you don't get to that? Uh, you, you don't teach that over that school? He's kind of doubting him. He goes, oh, no, no, we don't get to it till the third year. And the guy kind of half believes him. And then when he walks out, he realizes the guy was fucking with him and turns around and goes, yeah like that it's a great <laughs> back and forth of character work between those two dudes it's uh between damon and that guy that is uh, just fantastic to watch sorry I, I don't mean to nitpick at all but it's just fun to watch as an actor I, have you ever listened to an episode of the cinephiles <laughs> <laughs> sorry yes you're right go ahead um <laughs> what, what i think so smart about it actually is that he is in the normal world version now of grinding it out by driving yeah. that truck yes and that he is aspiring to be something important which is a lawyer yeah and it that is a thing that is well sort of respected by the world a respectable <laughs> profession <laughs> maybe sometimes not so much but what's interesting is is that that's not actually what he wants right you know right. this is not who he really is and so he's grinding it out to be something that he's pretending that he wants to be yeah rather than grinding out doing the thing that he actually wants right exactly you know and then it's nighttime we're at uh city law university and we hear this thing we hear chips and we hear kind of voices gambling and we hear that there's this thing called the judges game <laughs> i'd heard about it for years on the street before i was even in law school a rotating group of 10 or 12 judges prosecutors and professors they all have money and in my playing days, it would have been pretty sweet to have any one of them owing me favors. And Mike's in law school and he makes a delivery to the judges game because his professor and the dean of the law school is there. And that is Martin Landau. Yeah. Who's great. I mean, saying Martin Landau's a great actor is redundant. What's weird to me is that the first Martin Landau movie we did when he passed away, mm. there's a lot of similarities with that character. Oh. Because that's crimes and misdemeanors where he is a child of a very religious Jewish family yes. who has who became an atheist and rejected their religion to go into a profession. You know, now that particular guy is a sociopath. <laughs> yeah. And this is a lovely, sweet man. Yeah. But story wise, they're kind of similar. And, and this is also the, the kind of rebirth of Martin Landau, isn't it? Because Ed Wood is around this time. Mm hmm um ed tv sleepy hollow like there are a number of films that are around this kind of mid 90s to 2000 uh time where we start to rediscover the greatness of martin landau and i think he is so perfect in this movie steve he the right amount of touch he has like this um almost fandom 
of Mike because every time Mike in, walks into the room, he's Mike, Mike. You know, it's almost like he's a nerd who the cool kid finds cool. And so in that moment, you see that. But then he's also got a job to do when he kind of calls out Mike on him not showing up, which we'll get to later on in the, in the conversation. But he still does his job. But you can tell there's almost like a grandfather or fatherly feeling he has for Mike that comes through in almost every scene they have together. Absolutely. I think he definitely sees something in this guy. And I also think I think there's something about the fact that Mike is from modest means. Yeah. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like unlike probably most of the students in law school. Right. Mike's driving a truck. Yes. You know, right, exactly. and, and I think Martin Landau's character has a lot of respect for this guy. And uh, all the judges are making jokes. And apparently there's one judge there that's very important and, you know, could even offer perhaps a clerkship over the summer. He's going to preside over the moot court that Mike is going to be lead counsel for. So obviously there's important people here. The amazing thing is in this collection of great legal minds, there isn't a single real card player. I'm still high. <laughs> yeah, because... It's not about brains. Poker is not about brains necessarily. The bets are going around and it comes to the judge's bet. And he said, Mike says. Race. Um, Professor Race. Now this, I think this, this scene manages to be simultaneously one of my absolute favorite scenes in the movie. Yeah. I love it. And totally not realistic. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the guy, the poker players who are in the commentary track are like, nobody would ever do this. <laughs> you know, Just, the fact that you choose for your professor to raise. I mean, this is an aggressive thing that Mike is doing in front of all these, you know, important judges. <laughs> aggressive. Yeah. Especially after you just finished telling us in the, uh, in the voiceover that the last time a a hustler or whatever sat with yeah. the judges, it was 1905. And they... Uh, that guy couldn't walk in the street without a well, couldn't uh, cross the street without a ticket, and they shut down the poker establishment he had been a part of. So he's taking quite a risk to do this here. Check to the razor. Czechoslovakia. What's the limit? Twenty dollars. Big bets. Twenty dollars. Which, after the th- three stacks of high society, a twenty dollar bet yeah. doesn't seem like too much. You sure this is wise, Abe? It's your money the kid's betting with. That's plenty wise. We know what we're holding, and we know what you're holding. (laughs) The we is not true. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. Yes, that's a good point. (laughs) Martin Landau has no idea what anyone's holding. (laughs) The fuck you know what we all got. Summer clerkship in your office says I know what you're holding. This is a bold move. Yeah. And then, Matt, it's like a Sherlock Holmes moment. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like he goes and reads everybody's hand and says, well... You were looking for that third three, but you forgot that Professor Green folded it on 4th Street, and now you're representing that you have it. Um, the DA made his two pair, but he knows they're no good. Judge Kaplan was trying to squeeze out a diamond flush, but he came up short, and Mr. Eisen is futilely hoping that his queens are going to stand up. So, like I said, the dean's bet is $20. And they all fold. Yeah, and the main judge driving that scene, the older gentleman, that's Tom Aldrich, who, if some of you who know, into the woods, he's the narrator. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, that's Tom Aldrich. Um, and I think he was in The Sopranos for a couple episodes as well. So really, really great actor of stage and screen. So he's so good in the, in this scene, essentially being the antagonist in the scene because he's questioning Michael. He's like telling Abe, are you sure? You should bet with your money, blah, blah, blah. He's kind of pushing. And, and he's the one that kind of uses the expletive saying, the fuck you know what we're holding. So there's an anger there. Uh, and then when he wins him over, he wants him to come sit next to him as a first a chore to, of being his intern at his office. I mean, it is, it really is a superpower moment. Oh yeah. 
Totally. By the way, my dad used to do this to me all the time. What's uh, that? Particularly playing dominoes, which uh-huh. my dad was excellent at. My dad loved games and yeah. playing games with my dad. He always felt his job was to educate you on how to play the game better. Well, so I'm playing dominoes and just trying to decide what to play. And my dad would say, you should, you're thinking about playing your six, four, but you should play the four, three. Wow. Because he would read, he would know what I had in my hand. Really? Yep. Did it all the time. Fuck. I should have played with your dad. Oh, it was, I mean, he generally would kick your ass at everything. I'm not saying he would kick your ass necessarily. No, no, he I, certainly kicked fine. my ass at everything. Yeah, I would be quite fine with that as long as he was teaching me how to get better at it. I got no- that, well, you would have. he would have loved it. Are you kidding? If you said, hey, can you teach me how to be better at gin or bridge or hearts yeah. or, you know, dominoes? My dad would be like, he would all day. He would be thrilled. That's awesome. Whereas for me, I was resentful. And- <laughs> well, it's different when you're on the inside. I'm sure. Yeah. There's like, other can't stuff. we just play the game? Can you, can you stop telling me all the things I'm doing wrong? Dad? <laughs> all right, kid, your first assignment. Pull up a seat next to me. I'd like to. I can't. I can't. I don't play cards. Get out of here. There's this thing of, like, this movie is, is a superhero origin story in a weird way. Yeah, kind of, yeah. And he's denying his destiny at this right. moment. Not for his reasons. For other people. He's denying it for other people. He's not denying it for himself. He's denying it for because he thinks that's the right thing to do. And then, I mean, I think he's going through the turmoil, you yes. know, right? Like, yes, there's there's outside pressure. There's girlfriend pressure. There's real world pressure. There's depression from losing the, the big bets against Teddy KGB. Yeah. There's all that stuff that's bubbling around in him right now. I tell you, it's hard leaving that game and open invitation to lay with those lambs. Which, by the way, sitting in on that game and cleaning out all the judges would be the worst thing that he could do. Probably, yeah. And he shows up at his, you know, classically far too big apartment <laughs> in New York City. <laughs> right. And there is Joe Gretchen Mall. Yeah. She manages to do a walk a really fine line of not being a horrible person. Right. Being someone who, you know, believes they're doing the right thing for the right reasons and also being the wrong person for him, you know? She is completely the wrong person for him overall, but she's the right person for him at this time in his life because he does genuinely care about her, but she's not the right woman for him and because the right woman for him will, will be able to ride his ups and downs. She never stops reminding him of his mistake. And whenever he brings up cards or brings up anything else, She's immediately like in a judgmental position, but also in a position of I had to pick this guy up off the ground. Yeah. Like I, you know, I don't want to do that again. Uh, and so clearly she's trying to mold him into something that he isn't. And I think they both realized by the end of the movie, which is a great ending, that, you know, this was the relationship at this time. And they both learned from it, but mm-hmm. they would never be together in overall in the future, you know, and so. But yeah, you're right. She because there are moments where I think she's being un, uh, unduly harsh. Yep. But then you have to factor in. But I wasn't there to deal with him because Lindley will tell you it's murder dealing with me after I've lost a game, a match. Like I am just I replay it all day and all night. It'll blurt it out as I'm driving with her somewhere, and she it's it's an unusual thing to deal with. And so you gotta love the people that can deal with it and be willing to let you go back into the fray. <laughs> let me just say that right now. So. Uh, well, it's not easy. And what I think is that what she sees is someone who's a gambling addict. Yes. Right. At bottom. And, and so any and of those behaviors yeah. are, are, are going to lead him in that bad direction. Right. You know, she and she's, she does yeah. care about it. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and the thing is, is how can you tell the difference between a guy destined to be a poker player and a guy addicted to gambling who dropped every penny he owns, you know, on a game? That's true. You're right. Uh, by the way, this funny thing that's in the commentary track, which is that there's a joke where he, uh, you know, kind of propositions her like, don't go. Oh, I'll just stay here. I'll be really quick. You won't feel a thing. <laughs> <laughs> we both know that's not true. What the screenwriter said is they said, if you want to get a movie star to do your, your screenplay, compliment their sexual prowess early in the screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great point. Well, after I left you last night at the library, I impressed Judge Marinacci. I think I might be in line for a clerkship. Tell me more. Well, those guys were all playing cards. And, um... and as soon as he says cards, she has the reaction. Because she thinks that he was gambling. And she is not pleased. So instead of coming home, you went and played cards with some judge? I know. I wasn't even playing. No, they were playing. And I'm totally on Team Mike in this. <laughs> I, I don't think he did anything wrong. I think he, you know, he, he says he was networking and he was, you know. Yeah, but you're saying, oh, look, he just took a sip of the beer. Yeah. He's not going to become an alcoholic. He just took a sip of the beer. And it's like, yeah, but that's the entry point. And you just never know where it's going to lead. Um, I mean, I hear, I hear you. I'm just, I'm in the middle watching both of them because I'm just like, I, I get where he's coming from because, of course, it was an innocent thing, but he could have not played the hand with the judge, but he chose to do so. It led to a positive result, but opening the door to it is what ends up making it easier for him to to go back into that uh, rich rich club or whatever and play with Worm after he get picks him up from prison. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right about that first taste of beer. Yeah. I mean, that it, it, it tasted good. I just think if you get in this way, you'll always be a hustler to Baby, them. I didn't even play. But I didn't play. <laughs> yeah, and she leaves him alone, and, and that's the last, last thing he says to himself. He's like, shit, I didn't even play. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I've definitely had this, like... I really was totally innocent, and I'm still in the shit, you yeah, know? Of course, of course. And the other thing he asks is if he can borrow the Jeep because he's got to pick up Worm from prison. And another indication that she's not the right girl for him is she's like, well, maybe she is, but he's not ready to have a woman like that where she says, oh, wow, I, I can't believe he still have a friend named Worm, you know, she, which is judgment. There's judgment dripping all over that comment. Absolutely. But I will say when it comes to Worm, she is right. Well, of course she's right. <laughs> worm is not a good person for Mike. Everybody's right about Worm. We end up outside of the prison and we hear basically that he met this guy, Worm, that they were both at this expensive prep school. And the reason both of them were there is that his dad was the custodian and Worm's dad was the gardener and they were with all the rich kids. Yeah. And as we're hearing this description, we cut inside the prison to a card game going on. They're playing hearts and betting for cigarettes. And we meet Ed Norton. Yeah, man. Um, it's also with uh, the guy he's playing against is er Eric LeRae, who's in tons and tons of stuff. Boardwalk Emperor, Empire, yeah. and Luke Cage, all sorts of stuff. He's a good actor, Eric LeRae. Harvey. Yeah. And Ed Norton dumps the Queen of Spades on him. Motherfucker! What? You leave me no choice the way you play. This is another game that my dad would destroy me at all the time was hearts. <laughs> my dad would consistently shoot the moon. Uh, oh, it's terrible. Um, anyway. Did, let me ask you this question. To win this hand, did Ed Norton cheat? Oh, totally cheated. Yes, of course. I think so, too. He's a cheating son of a bitch throughout yeah. the whole movie. He lies and cheats throughout the whole movie. Yeah. 
And I think they do such a good job establishing his character. Yeah. Because as he's gathering up the cigarettes, the guard comes along and says, hey, what are you doing here? You're being processed, which means he's getting out. Yeah. And he still is taking the cigarettes. And they're like, you don't even smoke. Yeah. You could buy all the cigarettes you want in an hour and a half when you're outside. And he is still taking them. It's a horrible thing, isn't it? Like the, the this gives you a great window into who this guy is right off the bat. He is using these people. He is taking their cigarettes from them. And then he has the nerve to call them babies. Jesus, you guys are such fucking babies. You know that? If you're determined to die of cancer, you really ought to learn how to play cards. And uh, Eric Larray Harvey turns and says, Ain't a good idea to add insult to injury, yo. That shit will come back and hurt you. You know what? Not in this lifetime, Holmes. But the thing is, that Queen of Spades card, it symbolizes um, uh, jealousy and distrust. So it's like that card has some meaning that it's the Queen of Spades that he's kind of uh, putting down or, or, or indicating that he has, so or using, rather. So it, it gives you a little bit of a window and symbolically into who Worm is going to be throughout the movie. And to me, it just symbolically means 13 points in hearts. <laughs> um, um, that line of... Uh, Ain't a good idea to add insult to injury. That shit will come back to hurt you. Yeah. And Worm saying, not in this life. Enjoy your time. That's his character, man. Yeah. That they they managed to nail who this guy is right away. And we see him sort of checking out with and getting his possessions back. Uh, I love that he asks if there's anything else and they hand him a Ziploc bag that has a toothpick in it. (laughs) He's also got a goatee, uh, which he's shaving. Uh, Well, that goatee is a piece. It's a it's glued on. And so they had this idea of shaving it. And he's like, well, we only have one shot because we only have one little goatee. So once I shave it, that's it. Wow. Uh, And then as he's walking out, he's got that big handful of cigarettes. And what does he do with them? Throws them out. Tosses them in the trash. So he had it up. There's literally no reason to take those cigarettes. He totally did it just to be a dick. Yeah, he totally did. Yep. But here's the other thing we hear. In the voiceover, we hear that he was running all these scams with worm in school and they were little scams. And then they decided to like, you know, 1919 black Sox, the basketball team (laughs) at school. And they had the team throw the game and the point guard turned on them. They hauled him up before the school board offered him a deal. Tell us who else was involved and we'll go easy on you. Worm didn't say a fucking word. Got himself expelled. I stayed in school and graduated. We just did another movie that has a very similar scenario, which is Michael Tandino did not tell on Axel Foley when he stole the car. Right. And that is the bonding element. And here is the difference. Mikey in Beverly Hills Cop might be a fuck up, but there is no question that Mikey loves Axel Foley and would do anything for him. Yeah. Worm. Definitely didn't turn Mikey Mike in, right? But Worm is not a good guy. No, and maybe Worm didn't turn Mike in so he could keep using him later on in life when he got out. I mean, he doesn't always think ahead uh, no. in the smartest of ways, but he might have been thinking ahead with Mikey in that way. Picks him up, and Worm's talking about what he had to do to survive in jail, which was so I got to keep three games going at once. All right, I got a game with the white guys, a game with the brothers, and a game with the guards. And the trick is, I gotta, I gotta take enough cash off the white guys to lose it to the guards, so that they like, you know, keep doing me favors and shit. But I gotta, I gotta trim enough smokes off the black guys that I can trade and keep myself, you know, in the style that I've grown accustomed to. And and all of this without getting my ass kicked. 
And then the next thing we find out is that Worm's card skills, his cheating skills, have gotten a lot better in prison. You've been working? Is your game sharp? No, I mean, I'm, I'm off it. You're getting cold cards? No, man, I mean, I, I quit. And he tells him about losing everything to KGB. You went toe-to-toe with the mad Russian and he wiped you out. I love the mad Russian. That's yeah. Great. Needless to say, there's really very little improv- improvising going on in this movie, mm. except for Ed Norton. Of course. I also think he is fucking great in this movie. I know. I think he got nominated for this. Or maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. I thought he got nominated. What's so interesting, you know, looking at him, because again, like Matt Damon is exploding in the late 90s. Yes. So is Ed Norton in a different I, way. And looking at him in Fight Club versus People versus Larry Flint versus Primal Fear, he's a real actor, man. Yeah. I mean, Worm is so fully realized. Every gesture, every moment, there's so much going on with this character. And the thing, what's interesting to me is like, if I, if you met Matt, uh, if you met Ed Norton mm-hmm. and you went, what type is this guy? Yeah. He's, you know, got kind of a nasally voice. He's very slim. Yeah. He looks, you know, fairly young. I, I would, he could easily get cast, typecast playing kind of nerdy-ish sort of characters. He's capable of playing all over the place. Yeah. He's really good. Yeah, what are you, so what are you, you're just a student now? What are you doing for money? Well, I'm driving a conditions truck. Oh, God, you're killing me. Mike, Mike, we got to get you back on the game. No, 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 partners no, no, here. No, We're no, going to run I'm like off old... it. I mean, I really am. I'm done. <laughs> But that doesn't mean he's not going to deliver Worm to a game because Worm needs to get some money going. He needs to get going. He's already behind. Um, And they end up at this really nice house. And he says he's got there's this woman, Barbara, in there who is going to get him into this game with a bunch of rich kids, um, you know, trust fund babies. That sounds solid. That's a nice hookup. It's all the way nice. Okay. There's only one problem. And I got this feeling. What feeling is that exactly? You know this feeling very well. Okay, you know, when you got your table all set, uh-huh. knife, fork, sauce, yeah. A1, Luger's. Which is Peter Luger's famous steakhouse in Brooklyn. But you just don't have the steak. Which means he needs some money. Right. And that's, that is when we hear that Worm needs to make money quickly because he owes. The hurry is, other than you, my friend, there's about five guys, like, eagerly awaiting my release. How much do you owe? Like, ten. Ten? Does Worm owe ten? Uh, it's more than ten. It's more than 10. Even though he says, like, oh, I can't figure out the VIG, blah, blah, blah. No, I think Worm knows exactly how much he owes to every single person he owes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and this is the thing. is like, <laughs> I mean, we've all known friends or had friends who had people that were taking advantage of them. Oh, yeah. And you watch it. And sometimes it takes a long time for someone to wake up yeah. to the person that is no judgment, but it could take a while. It does. Sometimes, yeah, it does. You're right. No lie there. And Mike, I mean, he, he, no, deep down, he knows who Worm is. Yeah. And he's just not accepting it. Hey, look, you know, I can, I can get started on this easy if it's you and me working together. And working together, by the way, means running a game and probably cheating in that game. I heard you asking before, man. I hear you asking now, but I can't do that. I just can't do that. I, I made promises. Hey, you know what? What am I saying? I, I totally understand. I do. Gets out. And he says, it's great seeing you. And Mike drives away. Yeah. And he never goes back. He goes back to his apartment with Joe, <laughs> works really hard on moot court. And that's the end of the film. And he becomes a fantastic lawyer. And great lawyer. Picks up, great lawyer. Occasionally plays in the judges game, <laughs> but never, ever picks up cards uh, fully again. By the way, 
So uh, Matt Damon and Ed Norton hadn't met before doing this movie. Oh, they yeah. had a great time together. And do you want to know what they did off camera all the time? Play cards? There was definitely card playing. Yeah. But they also both tried to quote the entire movie of Midnight Run. Because <laughs> they both essentially memorized it. And they were trying to see who could remember more of the lines. Oh, my God. I would love to see a remake with Norton as the De Niro character and and, and um, Damon as the uh, Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin. That would just be fantastic. Fantastic. Why are you so unpopular with the Chicago Police Department? <laughs> <laughs> Missed me? <laughs> oh. um, so uh, he's driving away. And, of course, we know what's going to happen. Yeah. He's driving away. Looks at himself in the mirror. He stops the car. He thinks. And we hear few players recall big pots they have won, strange as it seems. But every player can remember with remarkable accuracy the outstanding tough beats of his career. Seems true to me. Because walking in here, I can hardly remember how I built my bankroll. But I can't stop thinking of how I lost it. Yeah, man. That haunts you, dude. Yeah. Mike. Barbara. This is the person who knows Worm (laughs) and gives him a kiss on the cheek. And she is running. She's got the plan. Yeah. And this is uh, Melina Kenikaratis. Yeah, Kenikaratis, yeah. Who's in lots of stuff, including like CSI and Providence. Yeah. And... yeah, I probably won't even sit. You know, I'm just going to keep him company. No, no, that's not going to work. Here's the play. You're my new boyfriend. You're looking for a regular game. Now, did Worm tell her how to get Mike to commit to this game? Maybe, maybe. I uh, think he did. I think he laid it all out. I think he knew Mike was going to hesitate. Maybe not come in but but he knew eventually he was going to come in and when he did he told her exactly what to say probably he you know crumbles basically yeah because he wants to play he does you know yeah and he sits down with a bunch of snobby trust fund kids worm and i fall into our old rhythm like clyde frazier and pearl monroe we bring out all the old school tricks stuff that would never play in the city signaling chip placing trapping we even run the old best hand play I, I kind of have a sense of what some of these things might be, you know. But uh, Frazier and, and Monroe is a basketball reference to the Knicks. Ah. Walt Frazier and Earl the Pearl Monroe from the mm. 1970s. Uh, and they won one of the only two championships the New York Knicks have ever won in the NBA. So that that was essentially they were running the two-man game, yeah. So do you remember uh, when we did uh, Ocean's Eleven recently? Yes. Yeah, And there's the scene where Brad Pitt is teaching the young Hollywood yeah. stars how to play poker. Yeah. And Matt Damon was on the commentary track saying that brought back real memories because he was the Hollywood star <laughs> being taught how to play poker right. um, for this movie. And he and Ed spent a lot of time practicing. Yeah, And then, because this is a Miramax movie, they sat in on a very well-known Hollywood poker game with Harvey and Bob Weinstein. Whoa. And apparently, according to Ed Norton, they did exactly what they do in this scene in the movie, which is they played as partners and wiped the Weinsteins out. (laughs) That is what Ed Norton says. Yeah. I really hope that's true. Or the Weinsteins let them wipe them out just to make them happy. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? I can probably crack the game just as quickly straight up, but there's no risk in this room. Now, some people might look down on Worm's mechanics, call it immoral. But as Canada Bill Jones said, it's immoral to let a sucker keep his money. <laughs> or as the Bible says, a fool and his money are soon parted. Yeah, I mean, like, it's great to these little pearls of wisdom from these books that you have no way to verify in the moment. Nope. But you're just like, this feels authentic to me. This is cool. Let's keep going. 
Exactly. Exactly. What's interesting too, by the way, is who we set up as who we're going to beat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because if worm and Mike had come into the judges game and cheated as partners, we would go their bad guys. Right. But because they're in with the rich snobs who are being, you know, presented as rich snobs, right. we don't feel bad about it. We're okay with them getting beat. Worm really has become an artist, too. Discard calls, pickup calls, overhand runoffs, the double dupe. His technique is flawless, but his judgment is a little off. A few times I have to fold the case hand just so it won't be obvious. Again, this is key to Worm. Mechanics yeah. good, judgment off. Right. Great point, Steve. And he also says that Worm does a great job of, play, of playing the angry loser, which he absolutely does. <laughs> and then we see him do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Fuck you and your never-ending string of boats, okay? Hey. Well, my Uncle Les says when the money's gone, it's time to move on. So enjoy it, you secret handshaking assholes. <laughs> and he storms off as the loser, and it's later on. It's outside, and Mike and Barbara and Worm are there. Her cut is 300 and since she said she gets 25%, that means they made $1,200. Yeah. I also think maybe don't settle up your money right outside the house where you just ripped everyone off. You know, maybe go yeah. a little farther away. Also, 1200 for a bunch of trust fund babies? That's not much. Maybe in, maybe in the 90s it was. I don't remember. I mean, 1200 is a fair amount of money to make in a few hours, but yes. Good point. In a few hours, you're right. Hey, how'd you know I was coming back? That's easy. Who's your favorite actor? Clint Eastwood, the outlaw Josie Wales, man, the man with no name. He always doubles back for a friend. Which I think is great. And wrong, because it's manipulative. He knew he was going to double back, because he yep. knows Mikey so well. He knows how to play him. Yeah. Here's a question. Yeah. How much does Worm care about or like Mike? I think in the most fucked up way of his existence... He does care about Mike, but at the end of the day, he cares about himself more than anybody else. So no matter how much he cares about Mike, it's never going to be more than himself. So Mike is never going to rank higher, and he's never going to sacrifice anything for Mike if it means sacrificing something for if it means he loses out on something. And him not telling on Mike could have been a fucked up uh, example of loyalty. Or it could have been because, like I said earlier, he's playing the long game. He knew if Mike was in there with him, uh, he wouldn't be able to know what's going on in the outside world, even though he didn't let Mike come visit him, you know. So it's just an interesting thing when you look at the way he approaches Mike. Uh, as I said, I think, he's the only, I think he's the only person he cares about in the world aside from himself, but he doesn't care about him enough to put him over himself. Yeah, that that's that's exactly what I think. I yeah. think he cares about Mike more than any other human on the planet. Right. And that's not that much, yeah. you know? Yeah. And also, I think it might be that the the high school thing, that was one time where he actually did have the courage of his convictions mm. and maybe the only time. Yeah. Because most of the time he's going to do what's easy. He's going to do, he's going to follow those instincts. He just doesn't think, you know what I mean? As much as he is insensitive, he also just isn't paying attention. Yeah. But Ed Worm wants to play more poker. So he takes him down to another poker club. Hey, you know I've got no problem with the way you help yourself, but these guys are fast company. They'll spot every move. Tough customer, huh? Yeah, I'm serious. All right. You won't just get a finger up your spine. And Worm seems to take that in. Okay, I hear you. I'm on play straight. Seems to take that in. I think yes. that's great. 
way to say that, Steve. Yeah. Seems to take that in. And we walk inside, and there is Petra Fomka Johnson. Yeah. It's funny. This character was not written to be a beautiful. This was just a minor character. It was just the woman who ran the counter. Right. And then they cast Fomka Johnson, and her character, A, becomes bigger. Yes. And she's just stunning and charismatic. I think really good in this movie. And in a way, loves Mike. She yeah. Loves oh, yeah. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's thrilled that he's, she's like, oh, he's back. Yeah. I knew he'd be back. Oh, no, I'm not back. I just. And introduces Worm. And what's so great about what Ed Norton does, and, and particularly like in this scene. Yeah. He is such an asshole. Yeah. In all the little ways. He kind of checks her out. He doesn't give her respect. Um, calls her a princess. Calls her a princess. Yeah. And Mike leaves and says, take care of him. Yeah. About Worm. That was not a good thing to say. No. What a fucking waste. You believe that? She's really got him by the balls. That's not so bad, is it? <laughs> I like his response. Depends on the grip. <laughs> and now he's going to ask her for money. And he could say, Hey, could you, he could say it in a nice way, but he doesn't. He says, come on, give me 2000 On the finger? You heard Mike. He's good for it. Come on. He's brusque with her. He's rude. He's checking her out. He's disrespectful. Hey, look, I'm going to triple that in a half an hour, princess. Let's go. Worm is the worst. Yeah. He's just a terrible, terrible person. He really is. Yeah. On so many levels. And, and, and the thing is, it could have been a one-dimensional character, but that's why you cast someone like... Edward Norton, who brings these kind of levels to the to the character that he's playing with Worm, even though Worm's being this absolute asshole, there's something about him that you can't take your eyes off him, you know, as you're watching the movie. Yep. So he's going to sit down and play poker with Mike's money. And Mike shows up back home and Joe has been waiting up for him. At least give me a story. You know, I mean, I mean, tell me you were out drinking till you threw up. Tell me you were getting lap dances over at scores. I don't care. Just give me something. I was entertaining Worm. I mean, uh -huh. at least I can do for the guy. So you were nowhere near a card game? No, I, w I was nowhere near a card game. All right? The thing about the addict thing is he is behaving exactly the way an addict. He's lying to her oh, exactly yeah. the way an addict would, you yeah, know? Absolutely. No, I wasn't there. No. What are you yeah. So he goes to take a shower. She sneaks into the bathroom while she's taking a shower, reaches into the pockets of his pants and finds a huge wad of cash. So she knows he's lying. And she I like that she puts the wad of cash out so she can he can see it to say, I know you lied to me. It's later. We're at uh, school and the team for the moot court is meeting and Mike is late and he shows up. And immediately catches some shade from the other partners on this team. Yeah. And just as Mike sits down to meet with his team, there is Joey Kanish. I don't mean to interrupt you, uh, future magistrates and noblemen, but I uh, need to work. <laughs> Such a great line, future magistrates and noblemen. Well, and the way he delivers it yeah. is so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and this it's like what you said at the beginning. This is a movie that has its own language. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's so great to see. I mean, so that's what makes these films like this stand out. They have their own language, their own dialogue, their own slang, uh, their own glossary, their own dictionary, you know, and it's fun to listen to those terms bandied about. And I think the gift of Totoro's performance, too, is the way he mod modulates his voice. Hmm. I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to bother you, magistrates and noblemen. Like, there's a certain level of like, he's just kind of, you know, 
you know, giving them respect, but also kind of, you know, kind of operating a little bit in between, I don't know what to say, in between the bars of music. He's just right there in between mm. the bars. And I love that. It's so interesting, you know. Well, what's so interesting about Kanish is you can't be as good a poker player as he is without being really smart. Yes. You right. know what I mean? But he also is firmly planted within a class structure. Yeah. And these quote unquote magistrates, future magistrates and noblemen yeah. are of another class. You know what I mean? That's what and he's sort of like, there's this weird, I'm acknowledging the distinction, but I'm also solid in my intelligence and my status. Yes. You know, like your status that society is saying is more important than mine. I'm not actually acknowledging that. Right. The guy's a cheat. He always has been. Right now he's over there at Chesterfield's ruining your reputation, whatever lousy second he gives. So we know that Worm is cheating. Yeah. Kanish picked up on it. No one else has picked up on it yet. Uh, did you give him the office? I tried to warn him, but he looked right through me. All right, I'll go get him. Because what we hear is it's okay right now. The guys that are playing now have been up for 30 straight hours. They're not going to notice anything. But Roman and Maurice are going to show up. <laughs> and that's going to be bad. Amarillo Slim, the greatest proposition gambler of all time, held to his father's maxim. You can shear a sheep many times, but skin him only once. It's another great line. And we are playing with Roman and Maurice, who are not as tough as Teddy KGB, but they are Russians and they are speaking Russians right now. And one of them is uh, Goran Vesinjic, yeah, who was in ER for years and lots of stuff. Hey, guys, English only at the table, no Russian. What are you talking about? What am I talking about? If you want to see the seventh card, you're going to stop speaking fucking Sputnik. You understand? Oh, dumb motherfucker. Don't worry, we might work together. Yeah, I'm sure you're just talking about pierogies and snow and shit, but let's cut it out, all right? There's the river, down and dirty. Pierogies and snow and shit, that's an improv from Ed Norton. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I got the jacks. Come on. Ace. Oh, you got it. And six. Wow, two pair, but I got sevens too, though, with my jacks. Motherfucker, slow roll like that. By the way, the poker players were also pissed at the slow roll. They're like, you never do that. That is a terribly disrespectful thing to do at the table. Because, and this is the thing about Worm. Yeah. If you're going to be a con artist, don't be a constant dick. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but clearly, Worm has self destructive tendencies. Yeah. Because he is being all kinds of disrespectful to these guys while he's cheating them. Oh, yeah. Just like he was in the prison. Yep. He loves to gloat yep. after the victory because he's a small man. He's a petty man. This is all he has. Yep. These are the only victories he has in life. And so he is just constructed to relish them in a way that will eventually get him get his ass kicked. And it's because he doesn't love himself. So he puts himself in a position of such danger and harm, you know? I mean, frankly, I think Worm is going to get killed. I don't think Worm lives oh. that yeah oh. lives that long after this movie. We can have a fun conversation about that. I agree with you 100%. Mike comes in, drags him outside. Where are you at? I was pumped up like eight Gs. I was ready to go on a run when you came along. All right, listen. Hey, wait, I want a hot dog. <laughs> the hot dog was Ed Norton's idea. Of course. So they got a hot dog cart, <laughs> and Ed immediately regretted it because it meant he had to eat like 16 hot dogs. Uh, it's also, by the way, freezing when they shot this. Oh, sure. You're in town for five fucking minutes. You already got a sign on your back. Oh, wait. That fucking Kanish rat me out. Here's what I'll say about that. <clears throat> yeah. What he is responding to, what Worm's responding to, is that Kanish told on him, and he's upset about that. Yeah. 
What he should be upset about is that he got caught cheating, is that yeah. Kanish saw that he's not actually as good at this as he thinks he is. Right. Come on, you got to stop listening to that guy, man. I mean, he sees all the angles, but he didn't have the balls to play one. Well, this is why I go. Worm and Kanish are the two poles in this movie. Yeah, it's very similar to Bobby Fischer. One mm. is Ben Kingsley. One is Lawrence Fishburne. That's yes. basically it, you know, kind of teaching the yeah. kid in, in that film. Same thing here. Hey, that guy hasn't had to work in 15 years. Warren. You don't think that's work what he does? Grinding it out on his fucking leather ass? No, okay. thank you. I thought so too. All right, now I know what real work is. Yeah. Anyone who has gone to do the, the, the real job, yeah, <laughs> there's a difference. Speaking of which, are you even going to get a job? Are you going to look? Are you just going to go back to printing those credit cards? Hey. Uh, you're going to go away again? I wasn't printing. I was distributing distributive it's different okay second of all i'm never going back there so no intention to get a real job nope immediately cheating and being caught cheating and says i'm never going back in yeah this is not a very realistic guy <laughs> no. this is what i love about you okay you think about the big picture that's great okay but it's not me i don't play the game straight up and then if i lose go get some real work or something okay i see a mark i take them down that's what i do that's the way i live yep he's a born cheater but I also think because that going to prison put him in a state of arrested development. Mm. Like, whereas Mike matured, Mike got a girlfriend, Mike uh, tried to become a lawyer, Mike lost all this money, Mike had to bounce back nine months later. So there was more real world experience that Mike has gone through that Worm hasn't because Worm has been stuck in that prison living that life instead of being out in the real world. Absolutely. But those two guys in there, they're not rabbits, Roman and Maurice, they're Russian outfit guys. Not as bad as KGB, but I mean, you don't want to be fucking with those guys. And at first, Worm's having none of it because he thinks they're lame. Look, you still got time. Just go back in there, right? Lose their fucking money back to them, all right? Just make it look good. Just catch a run of real shitty cards and I give it back to them. Can't. I can't. I got to put some scratch together, man. I got to get something going. Then go out to suburbia, man. Play in a fucking dentist game, okay? Uh, play, play. Go to Swan Meadow. Play in the golf pro game. That's an idea. I'll definitely do that, but... I don't know. I, I can't dump to these guys. You got to. All right, whatever. Whatever. And Mike thinks that he convinces him to go in and lose some of his money back to these guys. The worm's alive. So as Worm goes back in to lose money, <laughs> it's later on. And nope, he hasn't lost money. He is one. All right, so it's 10 grand total. Let's take back the two we lent you and give you the white meat. You just take the white meat. I love that. You know what? Why don't you give me all of it? Usually credit players only leave with their profit. Otherwise, the juice starts five points a week on Mike. Oh. Okay, we'll owe you. Several things about this. <laughs> it's just such a dick move. It's yeah, so, like, he, he already took out money on Mike's dime, on his reputation. And now he's taken out. He's won. You could just walk away with the eight grand. Yeah. But no, he has to walk away with the extra two and put Mike in bigger trouble. Secondly, five points a week is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And all the poker players in the commentary track was like, nobody, five points a week is crazy because you can't ever get ahead on it. You know, Look, I missed one meeting. You know, it's not about the meeting. I don't care about the meeting. Do you even know why I left this morning? I found that gangster's role in your pocket. I mean, it's not what you think. <laughs> it's not what you think. Now, did he f see the money on the counter in the bathroom when he got out of the shower? I don't know. Maybe he forgot he put it there. I don't know. It seems weird to me because you would have if if you had lied to your girlfriend yeah. and then saw the evidence that she found out your lie, 
you would have a big reaction to that. It's true. But we don't see anything like that in it. We don't. Look, old days, at least you never lied. You lost everything, but at least you never lied. I can't argue with her. Yeah, I know. You're right. No, this wasn't even a real game. This was like wiffle ball. Can you lose your rent playing No, I couldn't lose. That's the point. No, Mike, you can lose. All right, I watched you. I stood by you while you lost everything before, and I don't think Joe, I can go through I that. I wasn't going to lose. Why, why does this still seem like gambling to you? She's being honest. She never lies about her feelings on the situation. She never tricks Michael. She never, Mike rather, she never sends him down the wrong road. She's very honest from the beginning. You know, I care about you. Stop doing this. We could have a better life if you would stop doing this. Uh, don't, and I'm not going to do it again. Like if you, if you go down this road again, I am not going to be there to pick you up. I can't do it. You know, she, she never lies to him. What I, I think that what you said is really, I really get sort of what the interesting thing about her is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's not right about everything. No, she's not right about poker and, and her perception of what's happening with Mike isn't exactly what's happening. Well, she can't understand it. Right. Yeah. But she is, as you say, she's totally honest with him. Yeah. And she does exactly what she says she's going to do. Yes. You know, one of the few people in his life who does that. I mean, why do you think the same five guys make it to the final table at the World Series of Poker every single year? What are they, the luckiest guys in Las Vegas? It's a skill game, Joe. I, I love this idea. And I think it's really, really key. Of what, what I wish, I understand why it is the way it is in the film, but yeah. I wish there was more nuance, which is, and this is what I was trying to say before. Mm-hmm. In games of probability, where you have things like cards, yeah. there is a luck element to it even though it is also a skill game. Yes, of course. You know, bridge, hearts, dominoes, poker, they're all skill games that have a random element and a lot of probabilities within them. So why'd you have to lie to me? Because I knew you wouldn't understand. Understand what? In this line, man, this is uh, not a thing you should say to your girlfriend. Last night I sat down at this card table. I felt alive. For the first time since I got busted at KGB's joint, okay? Yeah. Her reaction is fantastic. You just told me you felt alive for the first time at a fucking card table. No, what? What's that supposed to make me understand? Yeah, that was not the way to put this. (laughs) Here's the clue. When you're in the wrong relationship, things will slip out of your mouth that are true to you when you're saying them. And then when you hear them back, you go, ah, crap. Yep. And it's, but it's your truth. And him saying that is true because she represents the safe play, the grind. She represents the house, the picket fence, the future, the six-figure, no risks taken really at the level that he played the 30 grand at. Um, and he, that doesn't make him feel alive. The game is what makes him feel alive. And so he blurts out that honesty in that moment, thinking he's trying to get her to understand, but doesn't realize he's also insulting their relationship. Yeah, there's a little more truth slipped out <laughs> than what he wanted. Yeah. I, I, there was there was a time where um, there was someone, I won't say who this was, who wanted to do a thing with me. And yeah. I didn't really want to do this thing. And I actually wasn't as maybe as close with this person as they thought that I was. Yeah. You know, and then I finally did go do the thing and I had a really good time. They said, you have fun. And I said, yeah, I actually had a really good time. And as the word actually came out of my mouth, <laughs> I knew that that revealed to them all of the resistance and misgivings I had had about not wanting to do this thing with them. <laughs> and I could see on their face that they heard the, oh, actually, you actually had a good time. <laughs> yeah. Oops. We are at Billy's Topless, 
which is apparently was a real place in New York that is now closed down. Okay. It's so funny thinking about, because we just had it in Beverly Hills Cop, how often the movie went to the topless bar. Yeah, right. It's true. You know, and this is right when The Sopranos is being made. So we're always at the bottom bing. Yeah. I think maybe the Game of Thrones sex position idea, that's the end of that. You know what I mean? Like, we don't really need to have scenes that just randomly have naked women in the background. No, exactly. Those days are over. And Worm is sitting watching the topless dancers and... I heard you was out. Hey, fucking grandma, how you doing? I think he is a fantastic, fantastic uh, character. Michael Rispoli. Michael Rispoli, yeah. He's he's really good in this. And by the way, that actor uh, played Jackie April in The Sopranos, so certainly has a lot of credibility as a New York actor there as well, being part of that project. That's right. Yeah. I was just thinking about you. You know, I could use you. Yeah. Yeah. See me in like two weeks. I'll put you back on the payroll. I love how status happens and changes in this film. Oh yeah. Because Worm had higher status than Grandma when he went in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just assumes that. He's going to keep that status. And before he went in, did he treat grandma well? No, of course not. Because no. he's a terrible person. It's like grandma's not happy to see him. Yeah. Necessarily. You know, there were a lot of angry people when you went away. A lot of people were mad. Yeah, I know, grandma. That's why I'm trying to put together a role A lot of people here. coming up to me asking if I could help, asking if I knew where to find you. So it got me to thinking. And then Worm says, Really? You're thinking now? That's big. Hey, geez. Come on. Take it easy. And he grabs him. Oof. drags him out uh through like the back of the uh strip club where we go past a guy that seems to be about to get a blowjob yes okay here's what i'm thinking instead of you owing 15 grand spread out to five guys you owe 25 to me what now by the way he told mike he owed 10 where the fuck do you get off 25 grand get off? Come on. He throws him against the wall and punches him in the gut oh, here's how it is oh. 25 grand and the juice is still running Strong moments, strong moments. And like you said, it's a switch of status. He would have never punched a worm in the past. But now that he is in the position that he's in, he's essentially not only verbally, but also physically telling him who's in charge. And it's very reminiscent of what he's going to do later to that bulldog when he catches yeah. that bulldog doing what he's or it's, was it a Rottweiler or whatever it is, or, or what he's what they're doing. He's essentially doing the same thing to worm. He is dominating him. He's showing him who the alpha dog is, and he's injuring him so he doesn't forget it. What's so interesting to me is that Worm doesn't know how to be anything other than Worm. Yeah. The, the status has changed. His situation has changed, yeah. but he doesn't change. He oh, acts like, yeah, just, just as much of a dick as he did before. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing, man? You were my partner. No, no, no. I was your lackey. And what we find out is he consolidated all the debt. He bought it for 30 cents on the dollar, which means that people didn't have a lot of faith in him. And the person that helped him pull that off was Teddy KGB. Yeah. And he says something really curious that I caught this time that maybe I didn't catch in times past when he says, when I said your name, Teddy perked up. And yeah. it may be because Teddy has, he has whatever hard on for Mike, whatever his hard on may be for Mike. And, and I mean, a figurative, I don't mean a sexual way. The fact that Worm was on the hook here, so there's another, is what excited Teddy about partnering with uh, with Grandma on holding Worm's debts. So I find that to be fascinating because there's not much backstory delivered. No, between Michael and KGB and uh, Mike and KGB, and I wonder what it is about Teddy KGB that wants him to 
subjugate Mike and keep him in his place or whatever. So it's just interesting. First of all, the worm on the hook thing. That was a good one. Thank you. Second of all, I I was going to bring this up later, but uh, apparently someone went up to John Malkovich and said, man, you're playing such a great bad guy. And he went bad guy. I play two poker games. I win one and I lose the other. What do I do in the movie that makes me a bad guy? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me is that's actually kind of true. Now, I think Teddy KGB does do all sorts of bad things oh, off sure. camera, maybe. But but the thing is, is that Worm is an asshole who is regularly cheating people at poker games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that Teddy KGB might have it in for this guy who has ripped all mm-hmm. sorts of people off and is not paying their debt. That doesn't make him a bad guy. No, you know what I mean? You're right. It doesn't. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I would want to shut Worm down, too. Not necessarily have him beat up or killed, but, you know, I don't want him at my poker game. That's for sure. And again, Worm's just still trying to play him off. Just take it easy, all right? I'll, I'll scrape something together. I'll come and I'll find you this week. Yeah, it's just my no, figure. No, no, no. So I'm going to take what you got on you right now. And he takes all the money off of him, and then he punches him one more time and oh. exits. So at this moment, we have realized that this problem with Worm is far, far worse than that we thought it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That he doesn't owe 10 grand. He doesn't own 15 grand. He owns 25 grand that's due in a week. And the person coming after Worm is connected to Teddy KGB. Oof. And at this moment, I think it's a good time to end part one of our exploration of Rounders. As always, we'd love to hear what you feel about this great film. We'd love to hear, did you start playing poker after you saw it? How good a game uh, do you play? Are you? Do you think you're one of the people that wants to take a run at the World Series? Let us know on our Facebook page. You can also find us on Twitter at Cine underscore Files, Cinephiles Podcast on Instagram. You can find me at SR Morris and SR Morris one on Twitter and on Instagram. You can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts on Spotify on YouTube. Please leave your reviews on Apple podcasts. You leave your comments on YouTube, support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And you can buy rounders along with every other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. John, yeah. how would they find you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, and head on over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says. Um, and all uh, my other podcasts, the Geek Buddies and the Top Ten that's out there for you to enjoy. So, and I think that is it for this week. We will be back as we lay down our cards for another serious game of poker right here on The Cinephiles. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 